Anyways, last episode on not creativity. What it's not it's fiction. 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 Yeah. fiction. Um, this has to be on record because this has plagued me for days. <laughs> I brought up somewhere like three quarters of the way in Saving Private Ryan. It is a film that I watch at least once a year. It has shaped me as a man. It has shaped me as a father. Um, it has shaped my view of masculinity. It shows men giving the ultimate sacrifice. And I, uh, specifically for a number of minutes, honed in on uh, Tom Hanks's <laughs> character, John Williams, <laughs> Captain John Williams. And how Captain John Williams is um, was just very brave and very sacrificial, and that Jesus is uh, better Captain John Williams. Um, Captain John Williams, however, is not the name of Tom Hanks's character in that movie. I don't think they ever use his first name. Uh, his name is Captain Miller, <laughs> not John Williams. John Williams is the composer of the score. Ooh. So I Googled uh, Saving Private Ryan, John Williams, and the composer came up. I was like, oh, that's like really weird that the composer has the same name as the main character. And scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and scrolled. And then I Googled <laughs> Saving Private Ryan, cast, Tom Hanks, Captain Miller. So for about four minutes, I tried to convince myself, obviously what has happened is I knew the composer was John Williams, and I made the very common mistake of getting the composer and the main protagonist of the story confused with one another. Mm -hmm. I tried very hard to convince myself of that. And then I had to come to grips with the reality that I could not, before that moment, could not have told you who the composer of the movie was and just pulled John Williams out of the air to name this character that for years has been an influence on my life and the way that I view the world. Mm -hmm. So I had to get that on record because I thought it was kind of hilarious to be like, yeah, this guy's really... He's a huge influence in my big, life. Yeah, it would be like, oh, you know, uh, my best friend, Olivia's husband, Jack. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like he's, my, he's my best man at my wedding. <laughs> and Jack has just been such a good friend for years, mm -hmm. you know. And all the people listen to that and they're like... Well, Hold on. Right, right. Poser. What? <laughs> you should have seen all the emails we got. Oh, Gee man. whiz. <laughs> and on the Patreon, oh, you yeah. can go If you go to the, the Patreon, we're listing, we're, show, we're listing the emails that we got. Because we got some hate mail. Even from Tom Hanks. Some hate. Yeah. Even from John Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Especially from John Williams. Proud of his work. <clears throat> so that's on record. My conscience is clear. Speaking of... John Williams. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Providence today. So there's this in a way in my mind kind of sets up another conversation, which is sort of the culmination or conclusion that I kind of would like to get to in this. But um, first, I think it's helpful to start out just generally speaking about God's providence. Like, what is providence? And I've got some quotes here to sort of walk through the conversation as needed to kind of give a little bit of structure. Um, and then as far as like God's attribute or characteristics and, you know, exploring that further, like providence is something that would play into even how we discuss not just the world's happenings generally, but even maybe get into like, you know, sin and God's role or not role or relation or not relation to it. But that's not really sort of my intention. So maybe these quotes will kind of help set us up, kind of keep on track. But uh, the first one I've got is by name man, a, a man name, <laughs> <laughs> a man named Thomas Adams, no relation that I know of, um, says he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is pater familius and disposes all things in this universe with greater care and providence than any householder can manage the business of his private family. He leaves it not as the carpenter, having built the frame of a house, 
to others to perfect it, but looks to it himself. His creation and providence are like the mother and the nurse. The one produces, the other preserves. His creation was a short providence, his providence a perpetual creation. The one sets up the frame of the house, the other keeps it in reparation. So first to sort of, I guess, understand what we mean and talk about with providence and how he brings up creation and providence. So um, what is the relation of those two things or, or maybe what is brought out in that that you think of? Between creation and providence. Um, the first thing in it that comes to my mind is um, that a right understanding uh, relating creation and providence um, if you understand those things rightly and properly, you can't be a deist, meaning you can't believe that God um, spoke everything into existence and then just let stuff play out and then, and then well, it would all come out in the wash. Mm-hmm. Um, so if God is sovereign over everything, then when Jesus says that not a sparrow will fall from the sky without your father knowing um, and that he knows all the hairs of your head, He's not being hyperbolic, right? Like when when Jesus says that, he means that when a literal physical sparrow falls from the sky, God knows about it. And he he actually knows the number of hairs on your head. Um, you can't... So when, a, when there's an anthill in your driveway, like God put that anthill there, right? It didn't just happen... Right, like it's God didn't wind the clock and then let it, let it go. He is currently, right now, um, working in and through His creation, um, in and through His people, through through various means. That's the first thing that pops up in my mind, anyways. Mm-hmm. And to piggyback on that, from that quote, it seems as if he's saying that there wasn't a point in time where providence started. Right, so it wasn't as if. At the resurrection, okay, now God's showing his providence to us. In creation, he's showing his providence from the very beginning. Like Anthony said, he knows the hairs of our head, yes, but that's not saying that he somehow does not know the hairs on our elbow as well, right? So with providence, it has to be from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. There has to be some sense in which it always was. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I guess, maybe a colloquial sort of way that people intend or maybe don't intend to refer to this to be like all things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, that's kind of what we're talking about, but just that God, in a way, is the reason. You know, yeah. he is the one that not just sovereign is in, he's in control over all things, but he actually either causes or permits, you know, all things that happen. And there is a reason, you know, behind what has happened or will happen. Well, I also think when people say that, there's almost a, they almost meet it in like a mysterious way, right? Like you get a you get a flat on your way to work and all oh, that happens for a reason. You know, you don't know why you got that flat tire. You could have if not, maybe you would have been an accident. You know, there's always like a like an element of mystery of like why that thing happened. Which is true to a true to a point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's true it's it's very true that there is a reason that you may never know that God deflated that tire, right? Like that that definitely happened for a reason. But the ultimate reason, in some way, there still is an element of mystery. I don't want to act like there's not. The ultimate reason that you got that flat tire is for the glory of God, right? Like God does everything for his, for his glory. He's jealous after his own glory. And so it's not uh, a tree falls on your house, right, for a reason, yes, to teach you to, to trust in the Lord, right? Or, or yes, to teach you, for the Lord to teach you a lesson. Yeah. But ultimately, the reason for which things happen is not, the ultimate reason is not for you, for your betterment, this side of eternity, but the ultimate reason is for the glory of God. And you said with that colloquial term, there seems to be some sort of statute of limitations with that, right? Like, so I had a coworker whose house burned to the ground, hmm. right? That would not have been the good time to me walk up and say, everything happens for a reason, pat her on the back and walk away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a month, six months down the road, that's when you gain true perspective. Mm-hmm. And she ended up finding, you know, a nice newer home near her 
close family and you know it was acted actually was really something beneficial in the moment you know it's terrible mm-hmm. right yeah and so there there are negative sides to that and then maybe how he brought up creation because this this kind of starts into part of what I guess my goal or thought was I'd I'd sent out like a summarized thought to you all and then in creation um so you know they both are providence just like he says in the quote you know or acts of both the initial and the continual sustaining or working out but the initial in creation god has established an order you know to to the earth you know there's an intended use or intended operation of all things or he even designed you know adam uh, with a certain body structure and certain abilities and ways of being able to think uh, but also even I think of the picture or illustration in like a science class when you're young and you see like uh, waters, the water cycle or whatever, you know, like rain coming down and then like, you know, before it's like evaporates, you know, like this whole big thing. Um, And those ecosystems, you know, even within the earth and how all things operate within them. um, That's a really interesting thing that God has established a natural order in the earth. Um, and Josiah, maybe from, <laughs> you know, like a scientific perspective, you could, I don't know, throw out like a good example of that, like a natural order, and then even but what happens when that order gets thrown off. Right. So, so we see that in like things like mutations, mm-hmm. right? So in what sense is that out of God's control? Right. Think about the mutations that cause things like uh, um, replication problems, like cancer, which is a unstructured replication, unfiltered replication of cells in the body. Those things have to be happening with God's consent or by His word. Right. Mm-hmm. If they're happening outside of His control, you have to say exactly what Anthony said that it was the the clockmaker. He set things in motion, and this is just one of the quirks. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are a lot of things that we can see in science that if, if we're going to say that it's chance or that, that God was not involved to do away with the problem of evil or the problem of pain, um, that really sidesteps, that kicks the can down the road. And eventually that can is going to get so heavy, it's a wall. And the only way you can really make sense of all these things is to look and say God has to be in control. There has to be some sort of providential hand pushing and directing this the way he wants it to go. It's it's interesting to think about um, f- specifically mentioning cancer brings to mind um, one of Chris Hitchens' objections that he would often use in, in debates. It was a it was a really good talking point. It was, it was pretty effective. Was he would say um, a, a create like a like a creator that created a universe in which um, children get bone cancer is not a very good. Is obviously not a good de- designer, you mm-hmm. know. Or um, one point that uh, Christians will, op- will often use in apologetics is if the uh, if the Earth were a mile closer to the sun, we'd burn. If it were a mile further, we'd freeze. You know, well, well Hitchens flips that on his head and he says, "Well, that's not a very good design. That it has to be that exact, you know." Uh, but the but the moral issue that Hitchens raises often uh, w- would often raise would be things like cancer, specifically children with with cancer. And I've heard other, other people use that point. And he says, that's not a good, um, it's not a good design, right? That that's, that that's there. Uh, but Keller, Tim Keller in, I want to say reason for God, maybe he, he raises the point, not specifically addressing Hitchens, but, but that point. And his point is just because you can't think of a good reason, does not mean that such a reason doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? So you can look at something horrible like uh, children getting leukemia, or you can look at something really awful. Uh, that's a that's a natural process that seemingly is random, um, and for and people getting disease that seem to not really need don't really deserve the disease, or however you want to frame it. You know, you can look at that and you can say that's really horrible. That's really awful. There's no reason why that should happen, and no loving God would allow such a thing to happen. But Keller's point is, you can't think of a reason, but that doesn't mean that reason doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't take it this far, but I I would take it this far, and I think one 
ought to take it this far, is that good reason is that God is glorified somehow. And that can be, that's a difficult, um, that's not very palatable. You know, that's, that's a really difficult thing to think about. That's a difficult thing even for me to say. I say right now that I believe it, you know, but I have uh, two young boys. I have a three-year-old and an 11 and a half month old, you know, um, and if one of them were to get cancer, I would be, I would, I would be undone, mm-hmm. right? Just thinking about it puts a pit in my stomach. But there is a there is a way, even if we don't see it this side of glory, there would be a way in which God gets glory out of that. And you see that it's interesting uh, to think about that on the side of creation, right? Because we think about that like personal tragedies, like like a house burning down, right? That could be something electrical that happened, or that could be. Uh, Arson even, you know, Mm -hmm. someone just randomly decided to to burn my house down, you know, but when it comes to things that um, are happening in nature and happening in creation um, seemingly on their own, it's a little bit more difficult sometimes to, to realize like, no, God, God did, God did that and is is going to be glorified for it Mm -hmm. somehow. Lewis mentions in his book, The Problem of Pain, how certain things have dual uses. So sticks are great for starting fires, but they're also really good at bashing someone's head in, right? And I think that lately, maybe the past 15, 20 years ago, this is just my personal experience, but a lot of Christians have felt that pain as a response to um, a, an argument against Christianity in saying that the reason why pain exists, the reason why there's these horrors is because sin in the world, they feel it's a sidestep, and it's really not. I mean, you think about chains, whips, guns, knives, all these things are created by a sinful creature, right? And they can be used, like like Lewis says, for dual uses, for glory or for pain. And I think when it comes to the issue of providence, that really should guide our way we think about things that are seemingly um, out of God's control or seemingly outside of his attributes, that he created us, in a sense, with dual purpose. We were created for glory, but sin has turned us to that other nature, that sinful nature, and we've been turned into a vice. Yeah, even, Anthony, as you are talking, I was was thinking about that difficulty and even believing or understanding some of these things on a more visceral level, not Mm -hmm. the abstract of like, okay, I will mentally assent to the fact that, you know, God is sovereign or he providentially is controlling all things. Right. You know, that that's different than putting some flesh and bones onto it and having a real difficult situation. And that can be a real struggle. I think, you know, that maybe isn't mentioned a lot. I don't know. Maybe that's a difficulty some people have and you know, on one level, like that, that just doesn't negate or change anything. Mm-hmm. Like it's still a fact that God is sovereign, whether or not it's hard to think through in a situation or not. But that is legitimately like very difficult at times. I remember talking to uh, an elder um, at a church and him talking about you know reading the Old Testament and seeing you know even Israel going in and being instructed not just to say, kill the men, Mm -hmm. you know, but then the women and children, you know, potentially, you know, whatever too, like in these various situations and like not to just read over that lightly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but take a minute and really understand the difficulty of that situation. And there are things like that that are challenging for sure to us now um, or should be. I don't know if you can just read right over stuff like that. It's, you know, maybe you're just reading quick, but it probably should have an effect yeah. <laughs> on us. Um, so let me go. Let me move to the second quote. I've got five here that kind of go through in order. So the second one, this is by Matthew Henry, and it said, says, God did not consult us in making the world, yet it is well made. Why should we expect then that he should take his measures from us in governing it? And this, in a way, gets at even kind of what we're saying with questioning God, you know, maybe you think to Job, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, what right do we have to question him? Or even what wisdom do we think we have above him? That if he should order the world in a certain way, 
um, that we would challenge it. Now, you have to take into account, I think, the fall and that things are not as they were originally, but there is still a certain order to all of creation, and it ha- there's a purpose behind that. And that if we would change that, you know, what do you expect to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. What are, what are your thoughts on that, like as a whole? As I mean, that my little summary there is that's probably pretty, not. Yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, that's deep. my main. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I mean, these are. I think there'll be more and less to say on different ones, but yeah. that's a pretty concise. I should say Matthew Henry's good at that, at getting to the point and not you know, beating around the bush. Mm-hmm. And so, and then this Thomas Boston quote. So this one's very closely tied to it. Um, says, everyone knows what is most pleasant to himself, but God alone knows what is most profitable. So, of course, not just that he set up things, mm-hmm. so he can he has the wisdom to govern them rightly, but then, of course, you know, like if he designed the clock, he knows how it was intended to work, and that if a change need be made, mm-hmm. you know, or if it need be repaired, he is going to know the most not just opportune, not just timing, but also the best fix. What is the most profitable or even the most profitable use of something? We're talking about like a stick and all the ways it could be used for good or bad. I mean, well, then we should understand or hold that God knows the best use of all the things that he has made also. So if you if you want to know how to use something or if, or, you know, if you kind of think through... Um, a situation, which I'll get to more specific one further in the conversation, I guess. But God, you would hope you would trust uh, what He has to say on that. <laughs> yeah. And it may be a little cliche, but when you're when you're putting together, say you have some IKEA product, which is I'm not going to get into that. I don't like IKEA, but <laughs> when you get you know the instruction book with like 60 different instructions, but that's how you follow, and you have to follow it if you want to put it together properly. In the same manner, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that all things are permissible or lawful, but not all things are beneficial. And so in some sense, we've been given an instruction book on what we were designed for, what our, what the telos is, you know, the end goal of our humanity, of ourselves as individuals and creatures made in the image of God, designed for a purpose with an end in sight. There's no sense of... Um, you know, where you have some, this depressed idea where there is no greater good. Uh, they call it a summa bonum, you know, the highest good of all things. There's, there's no sense of that in culture and secularism whatsoever. You live, you have sex, and you die, right? If, you, if you're good enough, if you're strong enough, you'll procreate. And you're, that's it. That's a successful good life. But if you understand that God is provident over all things, you, you understand that you have been made for a second world, a greater good, for His pleasure, for His glory, and the idea—the idea too of knowing what's um, pleasant for you, but God knowing what's profitable mm-hmm. for you—reminds me of uh, of like disciplining children. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not fun that uh, moment of discipline is not fun for for the kid. Um, it's not Solomon doesn't enjoy it. You know, but I as as his dad. As his father, know that we're, we're we're playing a long game here, and this is what's profitable, you know. Mm-hmm. Or Solomon doesn't want to; uh, he doesn't want to sit down and eat his meal. He wants to go build train tracks, or he wants to go play. He wants to go do whatever, you know. But I, but 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 I know as his dad, if I don't make him sit down and eat this food that is nutritious, you know, he can't just be eating Spider Man gummies all the time. He's got to eat. Uh, he's got to eat some chicken every once in a while. Might not necessarily be what he wants to do, but I know what's most most profitable mm-hmm. for him. And so that's a uh, just a small small shadow, tiny tiny reflection of of God, the Father. You know, we can't forget just tangentially here, peripherally, uh, God as Father um, is not. It's it's I don't it's not accurate to say that God 
presents himself as a father because he knew it's a, it's a common thing you hear God presents himself as a father because he knew that we would need fathers. Mm-hmm. Well, God, no, God is a father, mm-hmm. and he is where uh, fatherhood gets its name. He is where fathers get their name from. Is to is to is representatives of him, and so I, as a dad, as a representative of him, back to this quote, know what's profitable for my three-year-old more than my three-year-old knows what's profitable. And if you think of the the chasm of wisdom and intelligence between a three-year-old and a grown man, right? That that distance in understanding is comparatively right next to each other, mm-hmm. but when compared to the distance between a a created man and an infinite creator God. So if I have a better understanding of what's profitable for my three-year-old, how much greater of an understanding does God the Father have of what's profitable for us, especially as found in his in His creation that he designed? Mm-hmm. In the moment, it's really hard for us to recognize that. Like, I forget who it was. It was one of those Russian writers like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or something. And he says, you know, a lot of times we don't understand the gap between a human creature and a deity. It's like a, it's like us trying to explain something to a cockroach, right? That gap is so far beyond anything that we can imagine. And, you know, even an example explaining um, sex to an eight-year-old, you know, giving him the talk or whatever. And he goes, well, well will there be chocolate? Will, will there be ice cream or soda? Like, because those are the only you know categories of things he loves and enjoys mm-hmm. in his world right now, and for us to explain that to him and for him to say those things shows that he does not comprehend the glory of a sexual union between a husband and wife. And when and when we are struggling in the moment to understand what is good for us, and we ask our heavenly Father to give us insight from His Word, a lot of times we can we can feel that disconnect. We can feel as if. Um, we're just not truly understanding. And in that one sense, it's true. We do have the Holy Spirit to help guide us into all truth. But that has to be realized at some level. We It's very, very, very likely that we're potentially missing the whole scheme of things. Yeah, I think, uh, so for the, the tie-in in my mind, and this is hard for me to get away from, because this is how I originally got to this, was thinking, okay, if God has set up and ordered things, he obviously, you know, should be the one that has the right to say then how all this should be utilized, you know, if you will. And then to apply that specifically, I think from where I came from, um, so I was converted when I was 18, didn't go to church before, except for like just a, I mean, like a summer or something. We went to a Sunday school thing and I was like forced to go up front you know, and all this stuff, mm-hmm. um, which may be typical to some of the people to be listening. Like that may be a, have been what they experienced too. Um, and then I just think of uh, being converted and then trying to understand things and ask questions and kind of get, you know, further in uh, and then seeing different churches and the way they do things. It, it just seems so impressed on me that there seems to be a gap between what seems to be fairly obvious from the Bible um, versus a lot of practices we see in churches or in the church as a whole. And I think that's like the main, my main thing in a sense as a group to the church with this is to think from providence and to come down and conclude, what does the church service look like? Is it just what we want? Should a pastor, which... We know that this happens in our area. Like, should a pastor feel accept, like it's acceptable to say, well, you know, like we, we're still kind of doing these things. We're still preaching. You know, we're still like reading and praying and some singing, some of these things, but we're, gonna, we're tailoring it to what people seem to enjoy the most, right? Where we have certain attractive elements based on those same factors, there's a lot of difficulty in my mind with that because of walking down this path. That's only three of the things, and that's kind of a quick jump. But that's 
what that's what I keep thinking of or where my mind goes. And I have a there's a lot of difficulty with that. Um, and I don't know necessarily how to get that across <laughs> to some people either. Um, because to me, it seems simple because I've already arrived at that conclusion, I guess. Um, but I mean, do you see the same thing? Do you think people do that? Do you think they fail to recognize the wisdom or do you think they just, uh, they don't think that they are apart from that? You know, in my field of vision, optometry, opticianary, all that, we have a lot of patients who put on glasses for the first time, right? And prior to that, they thought they had no issues with their vision whatsoever because they didn't know anything better. They didn't know anything to, to, um, to look at it, to compare it to. But once they put their glasses on, gosh, all the leaves are, are clear, the, 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 the blades of grass they can see so clearly. I think potentially a lot of those issues are that a lot of Christians have just never experienced what true biblical worship should look like. And for some, they're going to kick, right? There's an adjustment period once they hear it, they're like, man, where's the fog machine? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But for others, once they see it and they see it clearly, if they take off those glasses, you know, it's awful. Mm -hmm. It's those are ro the rose tinted lenses, right? And now they have, now they can see clearly as a Christian, what true biblical worship is going back to anything like what they had in the past. It seems sacrilegious. And, and a lot of times it is. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd never made, I don't think I'd ever made the connection between um, God's providence and setting up things to function a certain way in nature and paralleling that with, with a church service. I think we, we would have agreed in, sure. in conclusion, but I don't think I would have made that particular connection. And a parallel in my mind is uh, God has set up family to function in a certain way. Mm -hmm. God has set up the state to function in a certain way. Um, and you can't just autonomously, <clears throat> you can't just autonomously run your home however you want to run your home. You can't decide. You you can't decide, and say, well, um, we're when we run our home, uh, we do we do what our kids want. Like our, we really just kind of cater our cater to our children, and, and they're really in charge of you know whatever we're having for dinner, whatever it is. You can't do that and expect the Lord to bless that when He's been pretty clear. In his word, who the head of the household is, and 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 you know, and and you and you can rap with other Christians about the particularness of that, you know. I mean, Josiah and I have gone back and forth for the last two, three years about it. I mean, we're really just defining terms, but about the hierarchy of the home, you know, and and we've gone back and forth about uh, how how a how a state should function, right? Like in, in my perfect make believe world, if I was king for for a day, if I had my own world, how would I function? But we, we do that on the grounds of uh, you don't get to make it up as you go, mm -hmm. right? Like God has decided how the state should look like, and and we can argue that. But the, at the end of the day, He's decided. God's decided, and we're in, we're in agreement there. And God has decided what the family is supposed to look like, and that's decided. End of end of discussion. And, and it's the same way with the church and what a church function, how, what a church service should should look like. Um, I'd never made, that's a really good connection to make. And it's, if I were to, um, maybe be specific and run the risk of, uh, run the risk of seeming controversial for controversy's sake. Right. But if there's no, if, if we're free to do, um, Instead of a sermon, we're going to do a movie. I, I don't know. I was thinking of something ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of a sermon on Sunday morning, everybody come to church and we're going to sing a song and then we're going to watch Passion of the Christ and then we'll have an altar call. I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's what we're going to do Sunday morning, right? If I have the freedom to say that, that's the same kind of mentality that people say, well, women can be pastors, right? When the when the text is as is, is explicitly clear as it is that that's not an option, mm -hmm. Right. It's but it's the same the same sort of thinking of God has sort of it's really a I guess it really is like a a deism in but in the way that you view the church. Like well we're just sorta 
on our own here. We don't have any guidance. We don't have any standards for how a church should function, how it should be governed, how a Sunday, what a Sunday morning should look like. So we're just sort of winging it and doing the doing the best that we can do. But I think Caleb has made a really good point here that no, there's there is this there is this it's a system. It's a it's a it functions a particular way. It's built to function in a particular way. And you don't get to go in and play, uh, play surgery, mm-hmm. and put the put a kidney where your heart is, because yeah. that you know. Well, even pushing maybe a little further, and then maybe this is helpful because this is probably the first place that this struck me in a way. And so, not just the church. Let's go more personal, mm-hmm. and let's say you literally personally right. as an individual. So the Christian life. I think I would have at first heard, of course, of like repentance and faith. Um, would have talked through, you know, the relationship between faith and works, you know, and what it properly is, you know, not working for faith, but, you know, like looking at Paul and James, you know, and kind of working that out, like faith without works is dead and all that. Um, but then, well, what about the Christian life? I mean, is it just whatever you come up with? You know, and you just have some mm-hmm. pieces, and the best way you can put them together is the puzzle. Um, I, I don't know. I just that sounds crazy to me now, but I think that's just what it seemed like practically then. But now, especially maybe family worship is a specific thing to even throw in, and has the same elements of private worship, if you if you will. Um, and so, um, Let's see, Baxter's setup for this, which is maybe helpful, is worship in four areas. The first is you as a person. The second is you and your family. The third includes the church. And the fourth is essentially like neighbors and state. Um, And so thinking of worship in those spheres, and then you have similar elements, you know, which are maybe, or which would be the scripture, you know, God's revealed word and its role, and really even prayer, or the Ten Commandments, these many things that help us kind of our outworkings of that. Um, but regardless, like family worship, I didn't even know it was a thing. Mm-hmm. I, I even remember sitting in, sitting in my like uh, marriage counseling with the person that did it and kind of asking like, well, I mean, what do, do we like do something at night or, or you know, or right. like read at dinner or something like that? Sounds right, but I don't know. And they kind of were dismissive of any sort of formal thing like that. Um, and then I come across like Whitney, Donald Whitney's book on it, Joel Beakey's book on it, and listen to them speak. And it really struck me because the way they order and talk about this, not just the family model, but then worship in that family setting and taking the means that you know, some of the means properly from the actual corporate worship or the Sunday morning gathering and applying it to the family. And then even if you apply that to you as a person, and so you think of your sanctification, not just being whatever you come up with, Mm -hmm. but looking to the Bible and saying, well, what are the means, uh, the methods, the tools, the ordinary workings that God has established for the Christian to sanctify and transform them? What are the things that help us in repentance? You know, that the Spirit naturally or normatively works through to bring about holiness. Because if that's the goal is holiness, you know, and God is the one empowering and bringing us into holiness away from sin and immoral practice, I mean, what is he established? Mm -hmm. That just seems like so common sense, you know, in a way. But at the same time, I think that's just not well known in our culture or in our Christian context and one of the things that is so winsome about like the Westminster standards that they go into what is called the means of grace and how that is the Bible and it's working out in the church service as well as the Lord's Supper and baptism the role they play something I would have no clue wouldn't would have known before mm-hmm. you know and then even prayer and that if again, from the providence thing, if God has established those and we deny them, then we have found or thought ourselves more wise than God that we could achieve holiness or sanctification through some other means. And that is just, I mean, it's foolish. And, and I, I know we act like that. Yeah, <laughs> still and, knowing I, it, and I also think to that, uh, to tack onto it, 
is in, in personal sanctification. So if there's, if we're still thinking in, in terms of uh, drawing these parallels between creation and systems and, and, uh, and how church, church, you can kind of think of it in terms of systems and mechanics, you know, loosely, and you can do the thing of, of personal, personal growth and personal sanctification is there's a way in which uh, you have to measure the effectiveness of that system. Right. So I work on a telemetry floor. Uh, so we get a lot of cardiac patients and, you know, there's a whole we're watching the circulatory system. We're watching hearts. We're monitoring stuff on EKG. And so there we have different metrics to determine if the heart is doing what the heart should do. Right. And that's all sorts of stuff from where we're pinching fingers to check capillary refills. We're checking pulses. We're looking at EKG and, and we're doing different measurements. There's um and even more intensive stuff like people going down and getting heart catheterizations and measuring ejection fractions. And there's all these different ways that you can, you can take a heart that has what's a pretty simple function, at least at a surface level, mm -hmm. right? Like pumps, it's just a pump, right. right? At a surface level, at least it's a pretty simple function. And there's all these different metrics that you can look at. And you can say whether a heart is effective or not and whether a heart is doing what it's supposed to do. And if it's not doing what it's supposed to do, you can, there's certain ways that you diagnose it, right? And so similarly, there's, there are ways in which you, me you can measure your personal growth. Like God in his word has given you a metric to look at and say, Am I growing in grace? Am I growing in the faith, right? He's given you the fruits of the Spirit. Am I growing in self-control? Am I growing in loving kindness? Mm -hmm. Am I becoming a more patient person? Am I becoming more gentle? Am I becoming more jealous for the glory of God? Um, am I becoming more um, ferocious in defense of His name and His truths? Am I becoming courageous? Um, am, I, am I doing these different things? And the ultimate metric there is, is Christ, obviously clearly that's that's the ultimate that's the standard of of holiness mm -hmm. right um but no that's just as you were talking that's what i was thinking is there's when you think of growth i mean i mean jesus says you know judge judge a tree by by its fruit mm -hmm. right and his, and his point there being is are they bearing good fruit or bad fruit are they a good um are they a good teacher are they not are they a true believer you know all that but also there's uh, a sense in which judge a tree by its fruit. Like if, if you're the tree, what kind of fruit are you bearing? And are you bearing good, holy, righteous, um, God-fearing fruit? And are you living a life worthy of the gospel to which you've been called? So to the same end, not only has God given us a an Ikea manual for how to do stuff, mm -hmm. you know, he's also in that manual given us the, the diagram and the picture for what it should look like. And if you're putting together a bookshelf and it comes out at a 45 degree angle and you can't put anything on it, mm -hmm. well, you've made, you've made the book wrong. You know, you've done some, something has gone awry and you have to find out what has gone, what has gone awry. Similarly in, in your own heart and in your own life, if you're, if you're watching porn, you know, something is, is wrong in your in your heart and you need to find out what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind that you need to do to fix it. And that's not necessarily to say that you're unregenerate or you're not a believer or, you know, some might argue that, whatever, that's stupid. Um, but if you have this thing that, you've, that you're unable to kick or, you know, pick your poison, porn or gossip or road rage or, you know, whatever it is, a million different things, um, you, there's, there's, there are metrics, there are objective things that you can look at and you can say, that's, that's not a good fruit. That's not a holy thing, right? Like an ejection fraction of 10% is not a good number for your heart. That's very bad thing. It's mm -hmm. not a good thing. Whenever you look at the, you look at the EKG and nothing's happening, that's not a good thing. You need to get in the room, you know? Um, so likewise, all that to say, God's, we, you know what holiness is and you know what it what it looks like. And there's a, there's a guy that I listen to and read and follow, and he's using this, he's speaking differently than I'm, than I am here. Uh, but he talks about when it comes to like uh, cultivating a plan and discipline in your life, he says, you know what, you know what you have to do, right? You just need, you, you just need to do it, right? So in a similar way, you know 
Christian, what holiness looks like. You know that holiness looks like Jesus. You know that, and you know that if you're in the Word. So you just need to you need to do it, and you need to run after and pursue pursue holy living. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I think we'll, I mean, if we do something else like this, this again, like a series where we pick something, I mean, I, th- I think I could definitely do like a part two where we actually talk about these aspects, you know, or these different mm-hmm. parts of it, and then the metrics maybe as well. Um, but at least for now, kind of move on uh, in a way to another, the fourth quote um, that ironically kind of talks about a clock <laughs> <laughs> where you've already, uh, you know, kind of brought that up. For a visual, and so you know, moving away just from the systems or from um, maybe the influencing systems or the sanctifying systems, if you will, for the Christian. Um, this quote is uh, by William Perkins, uh, and it says, "In a clock made by the art and handiwork of man, there be many wheels, and every one hath his several motion." Some turn this way, some that way, some go softly, some apace, and they are all ordered by the motion of the watch. Behold, here a notable resemblance of God's special providence over mankind, which is the watch of the great world, allotting to every man his motion and calling in that calling his particular office and function. So not just that God has created and established the larger details or, or larger systems, you know, and, and functions, but even us ourselves being placed as we are. And I can remember listening to a lecture by Packer from some class on the Puritans and him saying and going into detail on, you know, we are not just, you know, made unique or, or something with different gifts, but we're specifically placed in the place that we are. And the Puritans would have pushed as far as that even the social status with which we are born is something given by God and not necessarily to be sought to be changed, if you will. So, and this is, I think, huge for the people we're talking to or that are listening to us in Appalachia. Like the person in the coal fields that lives up the holler that uh, has no wealth, you know, in in a sense uh, compared to the world or not the same amenities, I guess you could say, that is a calling from God just the same, that that Christian with the people around them, you know, and the different opportunities they have or whatever their job is, if it's the coal miner or their electrician in the mines or they're the grocery store person, these are callings. These are parts to the watch as well, not just the larger system of the watch, but also that individual. And that they're not going to find happiness just because they move. Or something that really contentment in that needs to be found in God and in His providence. Yeah, it's really difficult to trust Him in that process. But I'm reminded of again Lewis talking about something very similar that Perkins brings up, and you mentioned that in the location in which we've been placed and the friendships and family that we have, that's where God has providentially put us. And if you think of the relationship that you, uh, myself, and Anthony have. Um, you know, we, we give ourselves to each other as friends, right? But if you were to die, right, does that mean that I can give more of my friendship to Anthony? He can give more because we are splitting between us three. And Lewis makes the point that it's not the case because it was you or any one of us that brought out the best in each one of us. So it's not a removal of someone or of a location, like you said, moving to a different area, necessarily will change that dynamic because it was that location you've been placed that God is using you to bring the best out of other people. And we're doing that for each other. We're doing that within our family, within our church, all those areas. And a lot of times that's the nitty-gritty points of providential um, headship that God has given us and placed us in that we all too often overlook. And I think, I think too... On a, on a broader scale, I think there can be a desire for, um, for Appalachians to want to be seen as uh, something other than what we are, meaning we want to be seen as, um, 
as being intellectuals or, or we want to be seen as uh, being uh, cutting edge on technology or you know, whatever it is. You know, we, we, we look at big urban areas and we look at we look at Silicon Valley and we look at New York and we look at wherever I think, man, I, we would I would love if Appalachia could could influence the market in a way that uh, San Diego can. You know, I, w- I would really love my, how great would it be if my small podunk town in the hills of North Carolina was as important to the rest of the world as uh, Tokyo, you know? Um, but there's a, God has made Appalachia the way that he has for a reason. Um, and we are not always going to, know the details of that reason you know like we like i was saying earlier ultimately that reason is, is for his glory and you're not going to know every single ripple that your existence caused that he orchestrated to achieve that glory right you're not going to know that the way that you drove your car to work you drove in such a way that it prevented an accident so that a a pregnant woman could have a baby and then that baby goes on to do great and wonderful things, right? Like as, as crazy as that sounds, that's just how God, that's how big God is, you know? And so I think there can be a desire to um, want to do things like maybe to be more attractive to people outside of the region. We want to drop our accent, right? Like that's just a practical thing that you can do. I've, sh- I shared a thing a number of months ago. It was a, <laughs> it was a tweet that said something like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do what accent do you use to imitate a stupid person or something? You know, okay, now that you said southern, stop doing that, right? Like we'd like there are smart people in the South, and just because we have an accent doesn't mean that we're stupid, right? And that's um, I know we're not Southern round table, but that's the same thing for Appalachians, mm-hmm. you know. So that that's an example that sticks to me of like there's a stigma attached to um, our accents and the way that we talk and even our dialect and we maybe you're tempted to say, man, I don't really want to sound like I'm from, from a holler, you know, cause I want people to think that I'm, I want people to think that I'm smart. I want people to think that I'm educated and that accent really isn't attached to, to educated people, you know, but God gave you that, God gave you that accent, you know, God. So for example, specifically to that point, my wife um, doesn't have an accent. Her mom is originally from Pennsylvania and her dad is from Welch, but his mom was from Canada. So even though he grew up in Welch, he grew up in a home that didn't have an accent. So she doesn't have an accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a thicker one than her. And she likes to give me, you know, just busting my chops, gives me up the road about it. But as a speech therapist, she has people, uh, and she serves in Boone County, and she has people who will uh, bring her kids, they want their kids evaluated, their own children evaluated, to get speech therapy for her to teach them to not have accents, not have Boone County accents. And she, first of all, doesn't have the time for that, but she won't do it. Mm -hmm. She won't do it because she says, no, that's, it's a dialectal thing. It's, it's, it's regional, it's cultural, just ethically. I can't, I'm not going to scrub that culture Mm -hmm. out of that kid. And so I think, um, so sort of this in like where you are, your occupation, your neighbors, your uh, your spouse, your kids, all of those things are divinely orchestrated by God, um, and you shouldn't you shouldn't buck. I do want to say though, I don't think that that means to not try to better yourself. You know what I mean? Like if you're, <laughs> I don't know how to say this tactfully so i'll just say it the way it came up to my head uh if you're dumb like read books (laughs) like if if god made you dumb you can still read books you know um but uh, there's a sense when you yeah strive to better yourself and 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 be better every every day in faith to the glory of god um but yeah as where you are right now at this exact moment listening to this wherever you are you're in your car on your way to work you're uh, stay at home mom and you're and you're doing dishes or you're folding laundry uh, you're uh, you're a dad who's home on the weekend mowing the mowing the lawn and you've got your earbuds in listen to this wherever you are up and down Appalachia is on purpose mm-hmm. 
and 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 divinely orchestrated for your for your joy and ultimately for for God's glory. So so all of those things uh, that we've talked about so far um, that really goes it really talks a lot um, I guess about God's role in all of this you know that in creation and providence and systems and what he has given to us but then I guess in somewhat in a conclusion to then turn to us well it's kind of like you know well so what mm-hmm. you know or then in light of that well w- w- what about for us um, and and because it's not all outside of our control, we've kind of alluded that already. If there's systems or things given to us, how well we utilize them will ultimately make a difference. But uh, this quote is from Samuel Rutherford, and it says, Providence hath a thousand keys to open a thousand sundry doors for the deliverance of his own. When it is even come to a desperate case, let us be faithful and care for our own part, which is to do and suffer for, for him and lay Christ's part on himself and leave it there. I mean, so just to say we can only do our part, mm-hmm. <laughs> can't do any more than that, like try to do God's job for him or something or mm-hmm. play outside the bounds, but also not just to be content with where we are, or who he's placed us to be, but that's all we have to worry about too, you know, play our part within his design and where he's placed us in it. And I think to that end, you you don't worry about the results yeah. of that either, right? You know, um, you um, God's going to grow the fruit that God wants to grow, you know. And the reality is, in the kingdom of God, the wheat and the tares grow together, mm-hmm. and so the the good and the bad all grows together. And those results are ultimately in is his, in His hands. He's the sovereign, you know. He's the one that's um, in charge of it all. And I think that can take a that can take a lot of weight off of your shoulders, you mm-hmm. know. Um, as a dad, you know, um, yeah, I can only do so much. The only thing that I can do is pray with my family, pray for my family, lead in family worship, discipline my kids, love my wife, take them to church, teach them to love the Bible. But ultimately, God's the one that causes that growth. I'm not responsible for the result mm-hmm. in that. I'm only responsible for for being faithful in my role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... One of the things, too, that's important, at least in my life, is to understand that it's the small incremental acts of faithfulness added up together over a lifetime that are meaningful. You know, God doesn't necessarily call us to build arcs to save our families, right? But he may call us to scoop manure off the boat. Or he may not call us to feed the 5,000, but he may call us to clean up the fish bones afterwards. And those may not be the most glamorous callings on our lives in one sense, but the faithfulness over a lifetime is truly an act of grace in our lives that we all too often overlook. You know, we, we see, we focus on the fern seeds all the time and miss the elephants, as Lewis has said as well. And when you focus on such the minute little things, you can get enveloped in that and get depressed thinking, as you said, too, you know, like, what if I have a sin in my life? What if I'm not leading my family the way I'm supposed to? And those things can add up and be a burden on your life to the point that they cause you to do the things you fear you, that you are doing when you weren't doing them in the first place. So we need to focus on the elephants, which would be the gospel, the truth of, of grace in our lives, and recognize, like you said, that providence is really undergirding and the foundation for everything else. If God is not provident in our lives, if he has no providence for us in our individual salvations, man, we're lost in, in both ways of the meaning. Mm-hmm. I think um, as you were talking about, like we're not responsible for the ends or necessarily like the fr- the you know fruit mm-hmm. of what comes about from our efforts. That seems so important for people in the region, even for kind of what we've already said. That I I can remember being at like a smaller rural church. Um, and then I think people can let the pressures of that get to them and they're defining success by a number of people that come on Sunday and then sort of compromise the integrity or quality, you know, you could say, um, of the service or of what's taught just for it to be more attractive or more palatable or whatnot. But 
yeah, if we're not responsible for that uh, fruitfulness or the level to which fruit is produced, and we really acknowledge that, then, you know, that kind of lightens the burden some. You know, what you define as success in ministry. And that seems really important to highlight for people to be listening because, yeah, we can't hold ourselves to the same standard as like Silicon Valley. You know, mm-hmm. if we want to th- talk about wealth and if, you know, just we, we should have a different metric. You know, I guess mm-hmm. that we, we judge by and not feel pressured. That could be really negative. But, but yeah, I think uh, I hope that's helpful. In my mind, it seems very pertinent just from my experience, but, you know, relating creation and providence, God's work in those, to how he's established things, and then how it'd be wise for us to act. And maybe in another episode we'll get into that practically a little more, what those things are. But uh, I Save think, that for the Patreon. Yeah, for Patreon. <laughs> for, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, until then. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, y'all.